No conductor is going to say, well, why don't we add a measure here and have the horn go like this? <laughs> right. They're not going to write the piece. Yes. So it really is about sort of interpretation, implementation, sort of getting the best result, yeah. but it's still your content. As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. So, Julia, thank you very much for making time to join us for the uh, Talent Magnet Institute podcast series about making leadership tangible. These conversations are about to help to make leadership tangible and work with the analogy of business leaders as well as the arts forms, whether that's the visual arts or the performing arts. And part of our conversations, as you know, is the analogy between the conductor conducting and leading an orchestra and the business leader leading a business. And I'm super excited to have you as part of that conversation to add the composer's perspective to that analogy. Hopefully not too provocative of a statement, but the conductor only conducts the music of someone else. That means your music. And I think as part of that leadership role, I'm very excited to have some of your time today and to hear about the composer's perspective about not only hear from you who you are, what you do, but if you compose a piece, how you interact with the composer, how you support him or her, rehearse with the orchestra. So that's all the stuff that I am and the listeners are curious about. So welcome to our podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you very much for the time. So do you want to start to uh, introduce yourself to the listeners? I'm, I'm sure you can do it much better than I can other than <laughs> Me saying that you are an award-winning composer, composing for the New York Philharmonics, the LA Philharmonics, with the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. So, but please tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yes. Yeah, so, as you said, I'm I'm a composer. I write a lot of orchestral music. I also write opera. I write for chorus. I write for string quartet instruments. And basically, I'm. this is my studio, <laughs> which is at home. And home and, is in LA? Yes, I live yeah. in Los Angeles. I'm from New York City originally. And basically, you know, I, I started writing music when I was about nine. Wrote mostly kind of pop and folk music. And then as I sort of got older, I wanted to explore really sort of the variety of colors that are offered by an orchestra has over a hundred musicians in it. When I went to I went to Cornell for my undergraduate and then University of Southern California for my master's degree. And basically, you know, what what I studied is how all of these different instruments work. So a composer does not have to know how to play all of those instruments. Right. We just write the music for all of them. And right. then as you mentioned, hand the piece over when it's done to a conductor who then, you know, is standing at the podium and leads the orchestra in the performance. Right, right, right. Very interesting. I mean, a very interesting component you're, you're just mentioning here is indeed writing that music. And how is that transition happening? I mean, obviously, you're writing a score, 
which is then what's technically handed over to the conductor. And I remember your conversation with Louis Longre from the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra a few months ago. There is so much more to tell than probably just handing over a score. So how is it usually, I would assume the score tells parts of the story, but it also leaves a lot to the interpretation of the conductor. So can you talk a little bit about that interaction or is it just a score or what more can it be? It's a little bit like a screenplay, which is an analogy that people are maybe more familiar with, where text is there, the lines are there. Maybe you have some notes about, you know, the intention of the actors, but there's so much left open for interpretation. So the conductor is kind of like the director of the film. So they're really kind of overseeing what each component, each of the instruments are playing. They're making sure everyone communicates together. And yeah, I mean, one thing that a lot of people don't know is that when you're sitting in an orchestra, you only have your part in front of you. So if you're a violinist, you can only see what the violins play. You don't know what the clarinet is playing. You don't know what the tuba is playing. So the conductor is the only person that has all of that information in front of them. And so they are really kind of just like making sure everybody is listening and communicating and staying together. It's an interesting question about, you know, how much information is actually on the score, you know, which is the document that has all the music. Especially with contemporary music, sometimes there's more kind of graphic notation. You actually have composers who, like George Crumb, one of my favorite composers, he used to write his music in, in circles. So there's all kinds of like, you know, different conceptual things right. that you can do to sort of help translate sounds right. onto paper. But there's always a loss of translation. So a lot of what classical music scholars do is they try to guess you know, what Beethoven, Bach, like what, what these composers really wanted their pieces to sound like. And there's the historical debate and all of that. But the great thing about contemporary music is the composers are here and we're around and we can give you our, our opinions. So what's your preference as a composer to rather leave more room of interpretation to the conductor or do you, and maybe it's a personal preference, do you rather prefer to be much more instructive because I don't want to say micromanage, but where you want to really be specific. So how is that balance? That's a great question. I mean, I think ultimately I want my music to be open to interpretation. So I want to be able to step back because I think the beautiful thing about art is that it's different for every person. Right. And so, you know, ideally as a composer, you create sounds and a framework and a vision, but then you allow other musicians to inhabit that world. Right. Um, So if I were to be extremely micromanaging, I think that makes people, then it becomes about my vision and my, I'm already giving all the notes. I'm already like providing all the words, you know, it's, it's nice to have people be able to project themselves into it as well. And I think that's how the music then lives on, hopefully beyond you. Yeah. 
So do I understand you right that, I mean, you do not want to be too instructive, but really leave room for the conductor and the orchestra for interpretation? Yes. And, you know, it's interesting because I used to write descriptive adjectives in my pieces. So I used to write, you know, I'd have an oboe line and then I'd write playful, bright, uh-huh. you know, inquisitive. Right. And a really wonderful conductor, famous conductor, who's actually also a composer, which is not always the case. Okay. Two separate people, but there right. are some famous composer conductors. And one of them is Esapekka Salonen. And I remember I showed him one of my pieces and he really advised me against doing that. He said, you know, you should let the music speak for itself. You know, if you put little, there's musical markings, like you could put that you want this note released in a yeah. short way. You want it, da, 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 or da, 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 da. Like, you know, there's different things you can, sure. you can notate without giving verbal adjectives, which sort of, it's a little excessive, maybe. <laughs> right, right. But some composers do that. And so, you know, he encouraged me not to, and I've kind of moved away from that. Okay. I think that's a very interesting balance. One thing that I've remembered from the conversation you had with Louis Langré was that in that interaction between him as a conductor and then you as a composer, I think he made a very important statement at one point of time of the interview saying that ultimately he respects that it's your music. So he kind of wants to follow some kind of a lead there. But again, still there is room of interpretation. And what I understood from the conversation with him is that it's rather uncommon that a conductor and a composer really interact. Is that understanding correct? Yes. I mean, when you get to the level of some of these major orchestras like the Cincinnati Symphony or the Los Angeles Philharmonic or the New York Philharmonic, it's often that the conductor's schedule is just so jam-packed you know, because not only are they conducting their orchestra, but often, well, you know, pre-pandemic times, they are traveling around the world and conducting other orchestras and constantly learning new repertoire, new pieces. So one of the things that's kind of crazy is I will spend, you know, six months writing a piece and then there's maybe two hours of rehearsal. Right. Which sounds sounds like nothing. (laughs) Yeah, it is nothing. Yes. I mean, the, you know, and let's say this is a, you know, a 15 minute piece, 20 yes. minutes that I've spent six months on. You know, the conductor will, of course, spend months preparing it and practicing right. it. Right. And the musicians will practice it at home. But we only all come together for an hour or two. And it's always a day or two before the premiere. And that means that you are part of the rehearsal before the premiere, before the performance? Yes. Okay. That is standard, that the composer is flown in by the orchestra, that they're present for the rehearsal, and there is supposed to be some sort of interaction. But I remember in graduate school, I was about to have my first orchestra. Well, so the the way that my career kind of began was I won a a competition for emerging composers. And that competition was with the New York Philharmonic. And I remember my professors, because I was still a graduate student at the time, I remember them saying to me, whatever you do, when you're in the rehearsal, don't speak unless you're spoken to. And (laughs) I remember thinking, 
thinking. But it's your piece, right? It doesn't matter. I, yes. mean, I mean, it was also, of course, the fact that I was that I was very young. Yeah, uh, sure. Very young. Sure. But there's this kind of, you know, and the more established you become as a composer, the more sure. you can kind of jump in. But the orchestra, you know, it it has all of the pitfalls of the kind of, I mean, what I see as, as pitfalls of that Western European tradition of, there are a lot of rigid rules. Of, Protocol hierarchy and so exactly. on. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so the idea is that the conductor is in charge and the conductor runs the rehearsal. And if the conductor has a question for you, he or she will turn and ask you, but yeah. otherwise you're just going to listen. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I remember my teachers telling me was if you have a note for a note, meaning like feedback, if you have right. feedback for, for the clarinet player or anyone in the orchestra, do not talk to them directly. You have to tell the conductor and through then the, the conductor, conductor th through the leader to give him the opportunity to be in the lead to exactly. be okay, very specific there. Interesting. And I imagine that maybe these kind of protocols exist in yeah. business structures as well. And that's an analogy as well, because I mean, if that would be a bypass, for example, you do not right. allow the leader to be in the lead and to still kind of orchestrate. I mean, again, these are those analogies that we're talking about. So it's interesting that uh, that seems to be a very, very interesting analogy I have not been aware of. Yeah, but there is this kind of inherent tension, right? Yeah. In that, you know, you have created the work. Yes. This is your baby. I mean, you know, right. you, you right. labor over it. Yes. And then you just, you just hand it off. And I think I'm, you know, I'm lucky that, you know, to be able to work with, with a conductor like Louis Langre, who is very open and, and wants, and I have worked with other conductors who are like that as well. but. A lot of times there's just simply time constraints and sure. budget constraints, you yeah, know, because yeah. we don't have endless time to rehearse. Yeah, yeah. Did that ever, Julia, create experiences where you had to bite your tongue during a rehearsal to not jump in to say, no, I, I, I had envisioned that differently or where a performance of your piece ended up to say, hmm, I'm not so sure if that was what I wanted. So is that something that has happened ever in your career so far? Yeah, well, I will say that I also don't assume to know everything about my peak. Sure. Okay. One of the things that's really exciting is like, I remember when I worked with Gustavo Dudamel at the Los Angeles Philharmonic, I imagined that the piece moved. So one of the, the big things that a, a conductor is very responsible for is the, temp the, the tempo. tempo yeah. Yeah. So when I'm, when I'm writing a piece at home, I can hear it on my computer. I can play it on the piano. I can have an idea of how the piece sounds, but it's a very flat rendition, right? It's, and then when you step into an orchestra hall, it kind of goes from 2D to 3D. And so I remember with Gustavo Dudamel, he conducted my piece much slower than I had said it should go, right? Okay. I wanted it to move quicker and he really slowed it down. And it took me a little bit of time to adjust to this new way of hearing it. Right. But ultimately, I preferred it that way. So that, I mean, that's really exciting. And, and when something like that happens, that's sort of like the magic yes. of making art when 
the thing you've created actually does start to live outside you and with other people. Yeah. yeah. So I will say that I, I don't assume to have all of the best answers about what's right for my piece. Yeah. That's a wonderful analogy too, that I, I have to admit is I've never thought it that way. I just know it from the business side where, you know, there are goals. It's very clear what you want to perform as a business in providing value to customers. But still at a certain point of time, like obviously you as a composer, a leader has to let go and allow people to perform it, still providing the outcome, the result, meeting the goal, but to do it their way and maybe a little bit differently than you would do that. And I think that's always a very interesting balance. And it's interesting to hear that from you where, okay, you had another tempo in mind, but oh, maybe it's not too bad. And maybe there are different ways of playing it, right? So that's, I think, that that kind of let go or that freedom. Obviously, you as a composer need to also let with a conductor and an orchestra, like with a business leader, to say if we are aligned on the value we want to provide to customers, what we want to get accomplished, I need to let the people perform themselves. And it may sound differently for the different people because they might perform it a little bit differently as well. Absolutely. And then, you know, the musicians within the orchestra too, sometimes you get to work with an orchestra where the conductor and the, and the musicians have a very healthy communicative relationship and the conductor actually allows the musicians to give feedback. And that's yes. great because, you know, I could be the greatest composer, but a violinist is still going to know how the music flows on their fingers. Yeah more than I will. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, no matter how many years of experience you have, someone playing the violin is going to know more. Someone playing the tuba is going to know. So it's it's also about when I get feedback from, you know, a player saying, this line, I understand what you're trying to do with it, but it's just not it's flowing awkwardly yeah. in my fingers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you make the revision so that you still have your idea, but it, there's maybe just a couple little tweaks yeah, so yeah. that it's, it moves more easily. Let's dig a little bit deeper into that because that's one thing that I've just recognized, which is an interesting analogy too. If I start real quick from the business side, I have led different businesses and I would say I have my sweet spot more on the commercial side, not in operations, not in finance. But I think I have enough understanding of the different functions, what they're supposed to perform. But I have never performed all the relevant roles in a business. You just said earlier and just right now, you as a composer, especially for orchestra music, you have to think every little piece of every instrument, although you probably have never played it and so on. Tell us a little bit more in detail how that works. And you just talked about kind of a feedback process with the different instruments and the the different musicians, especially for probably an instrument that you're not having the experience of having performed that. So that's a very interesting component. Can you elaborate a little bit more in detail on that one and how that works, especially how you imagine writing music for an instrument you have never played? How does it work? Right. So, I mean, this is really the value of what your school years give you. It's you know, when you go to conservatory, you go to music school, you're basically surrounded by fellow musicians. So as a composer, you know, maybe there's 10 other composers in the school with me, but then there's hundreds of musicians. And so a lot of it is just listening. A lot of the preparation 
is just going to concerts, making friends with musicians, having them play for you, writing something for them, you know, like writing a solo violin piece for your friend, having your friend play that back and then say, this worked, this didn't. And just doing that with every single instrument and trying to to make as many musician friends as you can and and sort of take in all of that. But yeah, it's it's a lot of listening. And then ultimately there's a lot of books, of course. You know, we there's orchestration textbooks, there's exercises, but ultimately it's the experience that you get. Because of course, how a clarinet sounds alone in a hall or in a room is different than how it sounds within the context of an orchestra. So it really is a lot of just sort of on the job experience. And that's why I actually think it is really great as a younger composer. I'm, you know, I'm 32. Yeah. (laughs) That you really do kind of listen to your conductor and because they have decades of experience. Right. So they really understand the technical side of it. And then over the years, I, I can start to anticipate what the problems will be and then correct them beforehand. Right, right. Very interesting. Another component I would like to elaborate a little bit more in detail with you too is one of the analogy components that fascinates me is on the one hand, there is the leadership role of the conductor, conducting an orchestra generating the music and not really playing an instrument, but playing the orchestra. At the same time, what I have learned from conductors, from some stuff that I've read is that there is at the same time, however, a limitation of the conductor because an orchestra has an own will, has an own character, has an own sound. So I've read about that magical sound of an orchestra. So from a composer's perspective, how much does it matter and you, you are commissioned for pieces by a specific orchestra. Sometimes I assume you might compose something. I do not know whether you already know who's going to perform it. So how much does that magical sound of an orchestra matter to what you compose? If there's a specific player that I know, that I happen to know in the orchestra, I might write a little solo in for them or okay. you know, kind of be inspired by them. But ultimately, it's it's not. I usually don't know the members of the orchestra. So okay. you know, the Cincinnati Symphony. I I don't know any of of the musicians, and so it's really Louis that I'm that I'm thinking about, and just sort of my sense of an orchestra. I suppose if I had more years working with a specific orchestra, maybe I would start to know their sound. But I don't right. have that kind of familiarity. Right, right, right. Yeah. Does those differences in sound tangibly exist or is it a little bit a myth? No, they They, they do exist, exist right? They exist, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's also about the hall, the acoustics. The of acoustics, the right. Or right. maybe an orchestra will have a particularly strong brass section. So, or like just a very loud brass section or maybe the hall really kind of brings out the bass tones. Right, right. So yes, there are absolutely different sounds. Okay, very interesting. One other question came through my mind. A lot of our listeners obviously are business leaders. We have leaders also 
on the one hand, who lead larger organizations, other leaders who are in smaller companies or even startups. And the reason why I'm excited about adding you to our analogy as a composer is if you imagine someone having a business idea, vision, starting a business up, starting to grow, add new people to the organization, from a composer's perspective, do you have any, any advice from that side of the analogy in terms of how do you engage someone to understand your vision, to be able to perform according to it? And again, find that right balance between that's my vision, but at the same time, I give you some space to fill it while you perform. Is there any, any advice you can add to that analogy from a composer's perspective, especially to people who start up businesses who are adding people to the organization and how to align them to their vision of the business? Yeah, I think, I mean, well, first of all, I, I do run my own business as well, which is just me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I also, you know, I also am in charge of marketing my music, publishing my music, okay. writing and reading contracts. You know, I'm, I'm a freelancer. Right, right. But, you know, I also, I oversee the business side of, my work. But I guess my advice would be to really understand and really be honest with what your strengths and weaknesses are. So for example, I understand that kind of what I was saying that I, I have very clear musical ideas. I have music I hear in my head and an idea of how I want it to sound. But then, you know, I want to know how the violinist thinks it's going to feel. Right. On the fingerboard. So I think, I think just sort of, yeah, being open to collaboration. I think it's what you're saying, that kind of balance of this is the part of the vision that is mine and is unique to me. And this is the part that I really need feedback on because I'm not the expert on this. Right, right. That's interesting that you highlight that. I can match that from, from a business experience, especially when you want to start to scale businesses. I mean, there is always probably a directive component to it, but to really start to scale, what I've experienced is then over time less directive, but much more enabling, empowering, encouraging the people you have based on a clear vision, based on a clear mission, having a plan, having a strategy. And yes, provide a framework, a score, but leave enough freedom of action, leave enough room for interpretation. And specifically, what we just discussed before as well, allow people still perform kind of their way. So it's authentic to them, right? Okay, the outcome still needs to be more or less the same. And maybe there is a little bit variation, but to really give that space to the people. So that's, that's a wonderful advice. That's a wonderful perspective, especially as this cannot be a one-way street. It should be really sincerely based on open and honest feedback and the interest of the visionary, of the founder, of the leader to sincerely be interest of the perspective of the people or the conductor's perspective or interest in the perspective of the musicians as well. That's a very interesting perspective. And at the same time, no conductor is going to say, well, why don't we add a measure here and have the horn go like this. <laughs> right. They're not going to write the piece. Yes. So it really is about sort of 
interpretation, implementation, sort of getting the best result, but it's still your content. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Julia, let's quickly also talk about your business. I mean, we are in times of a pandemic, one that we have never seen before. (laughs) Again, as, as much as I love our conversation about the analogy, I wouldn't want to miss the opportunity to talk about the arts as a business for a second. We heard a lot of discussions over the last couple of weeks and months about system relevant and being essential business or not. Right. Don't want to jump too quickly forward, but I think the arts is essential for us as humans, for us, for our mental health, for our balance, for our soul. How is it through such kind of a pandemic to be in the arts business, especially being a freelancer? It's very tough. I'm lucky that, you know, I, as a composer, I'm sort of booked in advance. So, you know, an orchestra will commission me. So right now I'm, you know, I'm writing a piece for the Boston Symphony and for the LA Philharmonic. And I've just learned, you know, that those pieces have been postponed. So, you know, they were supposed to premiere in the spring and now they won't. And I don't know when they will be performed, but I I at least have that work to do when I will feel the impact next year because this is usually when new commissions are coming in and I am not getting any, right? Because no one is commissioning. So sort of performers felt the impact immediately, right? Because concert halls are closed. Right. Yes. And, but for me, it will be next year that I won't have work. So I at least can prepare, but the way I understand it from my, my colleagues who are working, you know, in orchestras, administrative, in administrative positions is that it's just constant survival mode and triage. And it's just, how are we going to survive this? And a lot of these institutions are being forced to adapt in ways that I think are actually good, even though it's difficult. but. For example, good, good in which way? Well, a lot of orchestras are now being forced to create online content, right? Content. I personally think that's a good thing. I think that there should be more diverse ways of consuming the arts, and the world has been digital for a very long time, right? And it's not an either-or situation. We all want to return to live music. We all want to return to live theater. I mean, there's something about being in a room with artists and experiencing art that makes you feel alive. It's part of our vitality. It's therapeutic. It's really belonging to a community. Right. So we need that. We absolutely need that. But I think alongside that, we also can have recordings and we can have virtual operas and all of these things. And it's different. It'll be a different kind of medium. I'm not glad of the way we're being forced to make these changes, but I think that the changes that these organizations are being forced to make are ultimately in the long run healthy for the arts. Right. Ultimately, it's super disruptive just with, with the speed. There is no doubt about it, but I like that you give it some of that spin that I've, I've been seeing here in the 
symphony organization as well that whether we like it or not, the situation is what it is. So what opportunities can we develop out of that? And indeed to develop digital context and content, which hopefully as soon as we're going to be back is not going to go away because I think we can increase the relevance to this wonderful art. That way we can take down barriers of accessibility to that art, to that arts form. So I, I hope that there is indeed going to be a lot of those new components that have never been considered or embraced yet. But now there is really the urgent need to embrace that because that's the only way to stay in business at this point of time. Yeah. So that's going to enhance the arts form forward in in hopefully positive ways. Yeah, I think what's challenging is that there's so little financial support for these art for some of these arts organizations. So for example, I was I was speaking to a woman who runs a small theater company out here in in Los Angeles theater and and music and she was just saying that producing virtual content for them costs twice as much and brings in half, you know, the returns. Right. And so they're just scrambling. A lot of these organizations are already stretched so thin. It's just tough to adapt, as you said, so quickly. Right. Really inventing a whole new model because I don't know if any of you have seen these sort of live streams of org, but it can be, I personally can find it somewhat depressing because it's just, it's just a video of a stage and it's empty. Right. Right. And so really to create digital content that's going to be sustainable and enjoyable, it has to be an adaptation of the medium. It can't yeah. be a, right now because it's, it's in this sort of immediate response. It's just sort of, it's just the medium is just diminished. It's just right. feels like a false version of what we miss. Which is certainly due to the fact that it had to be started just instantly from yes. basically one day to another. I like the idea and looks like you shared it, that there will be a healthy evolution of that Yeah, to to not just apply it, but really find the way of where it makes really good sense. And hopefully at one point of time, hopefully rather sooner than later, it's not going to be an either or, but it's probably going to be a completion of being back in, in, in a music hall and to really enhance the offering that way. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. Yeah. No, very interesting. Thank you very much for, for that perspective as well. Like I just said, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to read how much all the different art forms are, are suffering through this pandemic, through this crisis, not just from an arts perspective, but also from an economic perspective, where there is not a lot of tax funding like it is the case in Europe, for example. I mean, I've learned how big of a difference this is here in the United States. And in that respect, thank you very much for sharing that perspective too. And we keep all our fingers crossed that, again, the arts will get through that and will take the opportunity to innovate. But at the same time, yeah, it's going to be able to perform the ways that we know it and we all enjoyed it. So uh, thank you very much for sharing that perspective as well. Julia, this was a, a wonderful conversation to connect our analogy to the composer's perspective and interaction with the conductor and interaction with musicians to imagine the music and writing music for instruments that you have never played. So again, there is so many wonderful analogies to, to the business topic that we discussed. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being with us on that conversation. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Zippel Jr. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.